Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, Arc's podcast covering everything innovation. Today we have Professor Steve Massaclat from Syracuse University. He's a professor covering new media management, but don't let the title fool you. He is not a marketing guy. I thought he was a marketing guy, but he's actually every bit as much deep in the weeds of AI and technology as all the geeks here at Arc. Professor Massaclat, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks. We talked about what's a potential topic for this discussion, and you raised something that's very fundamental. Normally, we're a little bit more on the intermediate term, sometimes maybe even on the near term with some news events. But you wanted to really talk about the innovation pipeline. One thing that the whole foundation, the premise of ARC is that we've had these core innovation platforms that have emerged in recent years, and they will be very ripe and productive investment areas for the next five to 10 years. But of course, the seeds were sown decades ago. And for us to continue to have these fundamental platforms for the future to invest in, we need to make sure we have a pipeline of these ideas, you know, kind of like in VCs in the seed stage. And you're saying we may be having an issue with the innovation pipeline. Can you explain what your concern is? The issue is primarily education at the really high levels. Okay. So the example I like to use for this is the mathematics of AI. If you look at Perceptrons. That's a 1950s innovation out of MIT and Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert and these famous people. And then what really makes it work is backpropagation from Jeffrey Hinton, right? University of Toronto and also Google Fellow. But that's what, 1980s, that he makes that breakthrough. In the interim, since then, we've had lots and lots of applied work, people catching up to the theoretical frontiers that those people laid out. AI's gotten really good. Arguably, we've caught up. And so the issue now is, what do you do to move beyond? What do you do to push the theoretical? So I'm an academic, and I tend to see things in these theoretical versus practical divisions. I'm going to stipulate that as a limitation in my thinking. All right. So a theorist simply asks, what is true? What can we prove is true? All right. An applied scientist, which is where I put myself, asks, will this work? Right. Or can I make this work? What can, we do? what can we do with this? Perfect. So people like me will study the theoretical stuff and we will push and experiment and try new things. Right? And this is what you see with people like Feli, who took these massive training sets and radically improved computer vision. Brilliant work. A lot of the work coming out of Tesla is building on established mathematics and established science. Where do we go next? And who's going to take us to where we go next? That's one of the big problems. Now, in my role, I sit in a faculty senate research committee. And the great thing about being in that position is you begin to see all the work being done, all the advanced work being done across the university. 
And you start becoming very sensitive to things like the National Science Foundation's calls for research and DARPA and the DOD's calls for research. So one of the things I noticed is there are many, many calls for building and extending our educational capacity, especially in advanced science, advanced data science and mathematics. That's true across every single federal funding agency. Right? And in fact, they're pushing for international collaborations. Well, what are the realities of that? Take the number of people studying STEM nationwide. Now, how many of those people? It's a radical drop from getting a bachelor's degree in mathematics to getting a master's. And then it's another radical drop to getting a PhD in mathematics. And it's the PhDs that are going to really push this stuff. They're the ones who are going to tackle things like Gödel's incompleteness theorem and figure out how we're going to surpass the limitations of our mathematical language to get to new operating systems that can do artificially intelligent stuff. That's going to take time. So I'm beginning to develop the sense that we're going to hit a plateau. We're going to continue to wring lots of efficiencies out of state of the art, but there's going to be a lag between now and when we start pushing the next frontier. You're saying that we sowed the kind of seeds for the current wave of AI innovation in the somewhere between the call it the 50s and the 80s to get to backprop and then Covenants in the 80s, and we've kind of consumed those dividends, so to speak. The easy stuff, yeah. And to go forward from here on to get common sense, to get artificial general intelligence, we're going to need fundamental breakthroughs, and there's nothing in the pipeline in terms of fundamental research to support that. The most honest answer to that is I don't know, and let me tell you why. So the common sense thing in AI—it's a rather poorly defined problem. Yeah, let's look at deep neural nets. The current records held by Microsoft for the number of deep levels that are processed. Um, Residual networks over a thousand layers. Okay, about 2015. I think they can go deeper now, but they've kind of switched tracks. Okay, least. but the issue there is signal degradation. Okay, the deeper you go, all right, and the deeper you go, the more noise, unless you apply lots and lots of power. So the DoD and DARPA have called for research that uses low power AI. Well, okay, so what do we do? They've also called for more research on common sense AI. Now, several years ago, <laughs> I was talking to a brilliant research scientist named Sudhir Chada out of IBM London. And we were talking about the problem of content versus context. And ontologically, Sudhir said, you know, the big problem is anything that's not content is context. So he's at core outlining a signal noise problem. All right. So out of the vast sea of noise, what do you draw and turn from noise into signal because it's contextually valuable? And there's this mathematics for modeling that, but you can't do that at low power in a deep net. There's got to be some new breakthrough. Low power? Do you mean like power of hardware, or do you mean some other power? Yeah, electrical signal power. I mean, just like raw physical layer kind of stuff. So, DoD wants this to happen at low battery power. So they can use it in an embedded application exactly. in the field. Okay. Exactly. Because you don't want soldiers schlepping around heavy batteries. Sure. Okay. So, that's one of the issues. How do we resolve these two things that look to me fundamentally unresolvable? I'll take common sense with high power. Sure, sure, but who's going to pay for that research, right? It ain't going to come from DoD. So DoD requires it to be low power. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. As Richard Feynman said, that's a fun, interesting problem because it doesn't look easy, right? And brilliant people are going to attack that, but it ain't going to happen quickly. 
That's all I'm saying. All right. There's going to be a period where we have to do deep fundamental research. Now, in the period, call it after mid 80s, when we figured out backpropagation and didn't seem like a breakthrough at the time, perhaps. But we've been doing fundamental research in the subsequent three or four decades, right? Shouldn't we have accumulated plenty of future dividends that we would be able to reap in the coming years? I'm sure there was fundamental math being done in the 90s, the 2000s, 2010s. It doesn't look that way. Backpropagation is fundamentally a calculus problem. Sure. Now think about that. Leibniz and Newton, okay? <laughs> the issues here are a little bit different, right? So let's look at one of the other mathematical operators, the, the log likelihood function. So log likelihood depends on taking a family, a parameterized family of relationships that you say, I'm going to be able to say, you invoked marketing at the top of the podcast. Let's, let's go to marketing, sure. okay? I've got a sea of data coming in on marketing information. And let's say that it's just sensor data coupled with traditional Google Analytics type data where I'm looking at media usage. And I'm going to say that I'm going to set up one of my parameterized families to be data generated by males between 17 and 19 and a half. All right, I'm going to do a real thin slice of the general population. In that slice, in this family of, I'm going to say the following things are related. I'm going to say there's a correlation of some sort or a relationship of some sort between their media usage, the search terms they use. And I want to be able to answer questions like, What's the likelihood if they search WWE or wrestling or the ring that they will then go on to buy a ticket for some related sporting event? The statisticians out there will say, well, wait a minute, are we sure those things are related? Are we going to impose a pattern on the noise and say that it's a signal? The mathematics of setting up that equation, that log likelihood equation, don't care. You can... You can input hundreds of data points, right? And the Google scientists or the people who follow Google out there say, yeah, there's 200 signals that we can put into this particular vector and, and do a log likelihood analysis. And are they the right 200 signals? You're pointing out the fundamental problem of data-driven style of analysis where you, you establish relationships between two very complex parameters, but you don't know if they're causal. It's causation versus, yes. versus yeah. correlation. I just saw this story, I think two weeks ago, China was training a, um, a classifier to be able to tell if someone was likely to be a criminal or not, just based on a frontal face image. And it was very effective in the initial tests and it was like celebrating the victory of basically building minority report level technology. In the subsequent test, it turns out that it wasn't a criminal versus innocent person detector. It was a um, smiling person versus not smiling person detector <laughs> because all the unsmiling pictures were mugshots of criminals when they took their police photos and they were not smiling. Of course, they were guilty. They had no reason to smile. And everyone else, happy picture was just a random photo from a, who knows, family photo. So you thought you were classifying for one thing, but it turns out it's a completely unrelated variable. Yeah. What could go wrong, what right? Could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. So training data issues are now starting to come to the fore. You see this in a lot of critique of AI. It's like, oh, no, 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 you got the wrong answer. And it's like, okay, but we can see a path to resolution there, right? Widen the trading data sets. The issue is, what don't we know what the problems are, right? Are you, are you missing, like, from your, where you sit, you're craving for a branch of mathematics or a particular kind of mathematical problem that you need solved 
so that we can get past disambiguation issues? Do we not possess that bad branch of mathematics today? We possess the tools. We don't possess good experience wielding them. Okay. So we still struggle with nonlinear relationships. And if you don't believe me, read any of Nassim Taleb's books on convexity. You really ought to have him sitting in, at this table. I think he'd be a great person. We don't fully understand convexity effects. We really don't understand it when you start piling them up. It's um, kind of like stacking layers in a new Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that simple probability question. What's the probability of A and B and C, right? This is why lotteries work. We don't fully understand the interactions. We were sort of half jokingly talking about marketing data. Let's make this serious now. I don't know of anyone who can fully map molecular level changes or interactions in cell metabolism to the point where they're confident they fully understand what happens when you expose what gene to what molecule. There's just too many interdependencies. And when you start using AI in that case to sort of throw molecules into cells and see what the model tells you might happen, that's dangerous. It is dangerous. I guess it's kind of yielded some interesting results. A lot of companies are using AI to basically do drug discovery. We haven't found anything yet that's gone to late stage, but it looks like they've identified potentially interesting candidates. I guess for those cases, you can always do the subsequent wet lab work to verify. Again, we're, we're up against the theoretical and applied question here. Yes, that is a great way to use applied science. But why does it work? What predictive value do you have there? You would need to get a really expert epidemiologist into this chair to talk to you about whether or not lab results are safe in a world where epigenetic phenomena and epigenetic expression might change the results at different stages, right? I mean, those are the kinds of nonlinearities that we just don't have good experience mathematically in handling. Make sense? Sure. Is your view then that we're about to hit kind of a bump or a slowdown in kind of AI development? I think a slowdown. I'm not saying we're doomed. Not at all. We are going to come up against our capacity to push. So we're going to have to hit a pause. And maybe, you know, there's a famous economist named Carlota Perez who says that at some point technologies reach a sort of stability point where they become generally investable. It's stable enough, it works, and we're going to now create companies that our grandmothers are interested in investing in because it's going to throw off regular dividends, right? Where ARC really excels is in identifying those innovation rockets, right? There may be a pause there. On the AI side, you guys, I'm sure, will look for other industrial sectors for these radical changes due to innovation, right? I want to stipulate your mileage will vary, right? What I'm talking about is very specifically the mathematical limits that inform AI algorithm design. Do you think that is a critical piece in how AI can be rolled out? It feels like that's always been a limit. If we kind of maybe draw a parallel to just semiconductors, transistors, or integrated circuits, we started with a very simple idea just to put transistors on integrated circuit. And every step of the way we saw, uh, maybe only five, 10 years out, Gordon Moore didn't think you know, it would last this long. But the simple idea, imperfect as it was, we've managed to scale from you know, 1965 to 2018, Moore's Law 2019 now, is still not fully dead. We're still getting smaller and smaller. Couldn't it be the case 
that just with current deep learning tools, imperfect as they are, just, just a handful of tricks, backpropagation, gradient descent, tension, RNNs, we do all these things, mm-hmm. these basket of tricks, and we seem to produce new tricks every year at NIPS and you know, ICML. Could we not continue unintuitively, easily, for another 20, 30 years? Yes. The applications haven't reached peak saturation. Just look at genetic learning algorithms and the way they're being applied to military, right? You can do lots and lots of dogfight simulations to train a genetic algorithm. So we haven't fully explored that. I'm just looking at a capacity problem. Who's going to do the research? Who's going to design the simulations that train those genetic algorithms? You said federal funding was increasing in capacity. Yes. The government has identified a capacity problem, and they're addressing it. But it's going to take time to move people from bachelor's degree through PhD so they're capable of designing those high-end simulations. All right, so that's, that's the lag I'm looking at. The future is here. It's unevenly distributed, right? That's, that's the William Gibson quote. The future will be here in a few advanced labs. So what you're talking about, do we have 20 or 30 years to still reap benefits? Yes. If we have the people that can move into all those places where AI has not been applied and where efficiencies have not been realized. Have you seen an influx in kind of the student pool? I guess when computers came about, everyone wanted to do computers. Internet came about, everyone wanted to do that. Has there been a similar rush to become a data scientist, become an AI researcher? And yes, so there is definitely growth and interest in those programs. You know, but Does this not fuel and solve the bubble problem? That to you're a worried? degree. But remember, there's always that fall off, right? Because this stuff's hard. <laughs> you know? So there's always that fall off between the people who express an interest at the bachelor's level and then masters, and then even fewer at the PhD level, right? So that's, that's just the reality. We don't have the ability to turn out PhDs at the rate we need. There's a 60 Minutes report a few weeks ago. It was a story about Code Academy. 4,000 open programming jobs at Microsoft. Those aren't PhD level jobs. They are not. That's bachelor's, master's in computer science. 4,000 openings there. We have so much absorptive capacity in industry. Getting people into these leading edge areas is going to be tough. I've talked to some other people in academia, and they certainly seem to be in a state of dismay about the quality of papers that are being published in these leading edge machine learning conferences. It used to be you needed to have a very good grasp of theory in order to have a good chance of have your paper accepted. And today, it's like, oh, I've spent 20 hours watching YouTube tutorials on TensorFlow, and here I am submitting papers to NIPS. Okay. This is going to be one of those edited moments. There's a group out of NYU, Meredith Whitaker, out of uh, NYU's AI Now program. She describes a group from, I think, UCLA. They were going to do a gang member identification algorithm. And same thing. They used a bad training set. And they basically saying it's all African-Americans who are gang members. Well, no. I'm here to tell you that in San Francisco, there were some Asian gangs. You're right. There's very low quality because there's such a rush to do something. But think about what those are. Those are people sort of cutting their teeth on existing technology and not fully understanding it. Hopefully, some of those kids are going to go on to do PhDs. They'll be the ones who push the frontier. I'm all for letting them make their mistakes, but let's definitely have peer review. Yeah? Yes, for sure. (laughs) Has the ratio of PhDs to bachelors, has that changed over time? That's perhaps causing this concern? Because I mean, it's always been true that we've had fewer PhDs, of course. It's always been true. Right now, there's a giant sucking sound of people 
getting hired as quickly as possible out of computer science programs into industry. I see. So they're not staying. For they're, not, they're not staying, right? What do you think of the industry-driven research initiatives? Every major internet company has a research arm devoted to fundamental AI research, whether it's Facebook or Google or, or even Uber. So I hear, but the papers that come out that I have access to are so few and far between. I don't get the feeling that they're releasing the really cutting edge stuff. Really? I mean, really. I- so I read the, the Facebook AI group paper and they're talking about salt and vectors and bag of words theorem and, you know, n-gram analysis. And it's like, well, Okay. Been there, done that. Been there, right? I mean, so you wonder what else is going on. Because it's private industry, they are under no imperative to share. They're not. But it seems like because they hire so much of people out of academia, and one thing that they always use as part of the pitch is that you can publish at Facebook or you can publish at Google and you will get 10 times more attention and traffic and funding, I guess, than if you were to do it in university. They seem to have published quite extensively and are quite open with even what they use internally. Facebook, for example, has done a bunch of stuff on memory pertaining to neural networks, which seem to really advance some of the how far you can recall down that problem. Uh, Google came out with transformers, which are an improvement over recurrent neural nets. Yeah, I mean, I've seen quite a lot of original work come out of them, and that seems to be applied, copied, and then used across industry. Good point. For me, the most interesting paper recently came out of Google Zurich Lab. The title of the paper was Ask the Right Question. And they were talking about using an AI agent to reform queries multiple ways, submit to multiple engines. But there again, you can sort of see how they're using what's lying around, sort of, right? It's the Google Translate engine that's modified slightly to do the reformulation of the queries. You know that on a Google SCRP, there's always the people also searched. So you know that there's some index somewhere, some parametric family that's, that's being used to inform that, right? They do seem to just, for the most part, pick up the academic dividend. Yeah. 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 And they answer to shareholders, right? I get it. I don't get the sense that they're interested in just figuring out what's true. It's always, how is this useful? You know, Yann Lacan, famous AI researcher, proponent, popularizer of convolutional nets, When he was hired by Facebook, he was under no illusion that he was able to just do pure university-style research. And we've seen, even for Google, very idealistic company, that uh, they've been reining in, trying to justify the cost of some of their pure um, AI departments. Like DeepMind, their UK Mm -hmm. division, has been basically, it feels like there's pressure for them to demonstrate value beyond just winning AI game challenges, right? That's why they're working with the British Health NHS to kind of use AI for medical applications. And perhaps because they rushed that, they ran into some privacy issues and some bad press. But yeah, even some of the most idealistic companies, you can't help but be somewhat time horizon constrained. Yeah, you make a very good point about research going on in companies. And it's probably not the really big ones that are going to be doing the cutting edge stuff that you and I are worrying about, or that I'm worrying about. Okay, I don't know what small startups are out there who are trying some wild and crazy idea to see if it's true right? That's invisible to me. I have faith that there are people out there pushing that. My experience has been that happens most often in academic labs. But absolutely, I am blind and ignorant of those kinds of efforts in small companies. You would know that better than I. I don't think startups are super well positioned to try extremely novel 
stuff that hasn't even been fleshed out in terms of academic research. Just by nature of their funding, they have to get to a product, right? So if they don't, if the mathematical grounding is not even sound, you can't really do that. The only company that comes to mind that's an exception is an AI startup called Numenta. Tell me about them, please. We know very little about them okay. because it's so secretive. It's founded by one of the people who you know, did a lot of work in AI. I think he had a very successful exit. So he has a bunch of money. And he basically has created a company, Numenta, as his own AI research lab. And he's trying to find the fundamental mechanism that the brain uses to have intelligence. And he has his own theory. It feels like it lives outside of academia completely. Uh, I don't know if it's been presented in conferences or if papers been okay, published. Okay, but I love this. But it's a wacky idea. I love this because he wonders if it's true. Yeah. Those are the people that push the frontier. Now, I have a policy. I don't open my mouth about stuff I don't know anything about. If you look in the academic pipeline lens, quantum computing is going to start exerting a massive draw on some of the top researchers. Like I've already seen proposals just at my university for studies, you know, requests for postdoctoral researchers to push the edge on quantum computing. Why do you think this is happening now? I know IBM has had some advances in stable qubits. Again, I'm violating my policy of opening my mouth. I am ignorant of this stuff. But if you look at the attraction, what's a good gnarly computational problem to solve? Quantum computing certainly qualifies. Physicists who might have been looking at new mathematics in computation for standard architectures are going to start shifting over to qubit architectures and quantum architectures, right? That qualifies as pushing the envelope. But that, I think, will lead to the additional pressure problem of available people to work on current gnarly problems. Get yourself a quantum computing expert here at the table, okay? That ain't me. <laughs> We haven't. That's a good idea. It's, uh, it's so intellectually intimidating that you don't even want to start. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's always the test if someone really knows it, right? Can they teach it? Yeah. Yeah. So get someone here to teach you. Fair. That's a good idea. How long have you been teaching this course at Syracuse? Oh, I was asked to start this program in 2008. And it took me a long time to find that balance of how much math, how much math do you teach to journalists, right? Typically the answer is not a lot. <laughs> okay, so I've been working for that long to try to bring people on to understand all of the complex interplay here. It's a struggle to make people self-interested enough to say, I need to learn this stuff. is <laughs> a great time horizon. I guess you've had 10 years to observe how things change. You basically went from pre-iPhone-ish to the current state of the world where we have mm -hmm. iPhone with AI and cloud and all this great stuff. And blockchain. Blockchain technologies, yeah. What's been the most stark contrast in how students come in today and their expectations and what they want versus 10 years ago? I'm not going to sound very nice when I say this. Go for it. Uh, They're not listening. <laughs> In 2008, students knew they didn't know anything. They knew that there had been these massive advances and they weren't up to speed. Today, students think they are. They are. That they're up to speed oh, on okay. stuff and they're not. Okay. I mean, just because you have a Facebook account doesn't mean you understand social media. There are issues of scale and speed that are just inhuman. So experience with the front end UI of a system doesn't mean you understand the system. And that's the single biggest problem I see. It's also the single biggest opportunity for a teacher, right? 
you pop the hood on this stuff and you say, look, here's what's going on underneath. And they go, wow, I had no idea. All right. So for a professor, those are the teachable moments. But that's the single biggest difference I see. We've gotten used to this stuff and we think it's work a day and normal. It isn't. In my circles, which tend to be a little, sometimes a bit fringe, very pro-decentralized, there's this narrative on, let's call it a corner of Twitter that says universities are becoming obsolete. And this whole four-year degree, ton of debt to just get a piece of paper that verifies you in the eyes of an employer is really an ineffective way, an efficient way as well, to acquire knowledge in an age where, for example, just, just the sheer amount of quality and diverse content on Twitter on YouTube. It seems like you could get an education, a university education on YouTube alone, not to mention podcasts and all those available free books and course material. And people are very, well, there's a subset of people who are very vocal about kind of throwing it all out and a revolution in education, higher education. What do you think of that? In the 1990s, when I first started working in this stuff, the mantra was any teacher who can be replaced by a computer needs to be. Get them out. If you're not better than a computer, or I guess we'll put the modern twist on it, professors, if you're not better than Twitter at educating, get out of the work, right? You're not good. For a certain class of autodidact, for really curious people, yeah, Twitter's good enough. The internet and its available resources, Khan Academy and lynda.com, that's good enough to get you a certain way. It's good enough to get you employable for those people. But I tell you what, those people, you put them in any university and they're going to do well. That's not who universities are for. Universities are for people who need a more structured environment and who want to work on hard stuff but need some guidance. The patron saint of innovation, Clay Christensen, says, yeah, the universities are going to have to come up against a reckoning. Agreed. But there will always be a market. It may be smaller than it is currently. It very likely is smaller than it currently is. But there will always be a market for people to do good, humane guidance through complex topics. Mm-hmm. I think the key word you said is autodidact. It feels like these people who believe this are those curious people. They're probably yeah. autodidacts, right? And they've self-selected and they believe everyone will be like this. <laughs> and we know from empirical data that the completion rates on these MOOCs are horrendous. Perfect point. And in every performance review in any company, one of the most consistent and popular feedback is, I need more structure, Yeah, right? right? So people are asking for more structure. And universities provide that as well as many other things which are not even part of the official value proposition sheet. The way I was taught to teach, right, is using schemas. So I can teach you something new if I'm able to give you a sort of mental scaffolding to attach it to so that it's sufficient for you to start to develop your own understanding, your own scaffolding around it. And some books are that well-written where you say, oh, yeah, I understand. I see. I see how things connect to this, right? But the vast majority aren't. The vast majority require that structure you're talking about. So don't forget that all those folks out there on Twitter are probably dealing with really good stuff. And it's hard to find that really good stuff that speaks to everyone. Professor Scott Galloway at NYU made a point that millennials are a pain in the butt, but they're also really talented. And kids today can acquire so much knowledge by themselves and are just so much more effective in the workplace day one. Do you agree with that point of view? It's funny. Before I was here, I was teaching a seminar at the SU Center a few blocks away. And the last speaker was a woman who graduated last year. And she was telling a story about 
being thrown into a brand new complex situation, hearing a whole bunch of acronyms and secretly Googling all of them as she was listening to her boss. So what is Galloway describing? If he's describing people who are conversant in our beautiful information retrieval systems, being more effective at work, my ex-student qualifies for that. So that kind of information literacy probably does differentiate today's graduates from past ones, right? They're able to, I don't know, listen to their boss, talk about something confusing, Google stuff and sort of on the fly and begin to weave it into something good enough to proceed, right? Yeah, I guess that would qualify as a new skill that differentiates modern kids. I feel like there's a but coming. No, I haven't thought about this enough to think that there's a but coming. I mean, I think Galloway's right. There is an example and he knows better than me. It's his idea. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? So there's one thing I want to end on is that the lesson of me being here must not be hopelessness or things are bad. Things are going to slow down. But for anybody out there who wants to know what's going to come next, it's going to come out of people asking wild and crazy ideas in the relative safety of a lab where they can study it and pursue it. Now, whether that lab is academic or industrial or a startup somewhere, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that's where it's going to come from. Someone who says, okay, I understand state-of-the-art pretty well. What don't we know? And there won't be an immediate business application, but what they'll unleash is what will, I think, make for great opportunities in your next fund, you know? (laughs) I think much of ARC right now is reaping the dividends sown decades ago by people who are at the fringes. At one point, neural nets were completely out of fashion. Backpropagation yeah. was not considered a thing. Everything in the immunotherapy world was once considered just a crazy idea. The body doesn't want to touch cancer. It's part of ourselves. In all those cases, it took some crazy person, a lung wolf, basically, with some funding from someone or someplace to get to where it is today. And I think we need more of those people in the world. Yeah. Well, there may be a pipeline issue in my industry, in education. There's no issue in human ingenuity. That's a great positive note to end on. Professor Massaclat, thanks for coming on. FYI. It was really great to be here, James. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. 